I'm Rithia Richard. My name is Kiara. I'm Ricky. I'm Tom. And welcome to... Welcome to... Welcome to... Welcome to... Welcome to Design Lab Brew Season 3. I'm Gemma. In this season, we will explore how Design Lab offers a platform between technology and society via the unique insights from the creators and facilitators. Get ready to ride the sound waves into some interesting chats and fun commentary. Welcome to the Design Lab Brew Podcast. My name is Kiara, and today I'm joined by Gemma, my co-host. Today, we have a very special guest. Jelle van Dijk is a design researcher at Design Lab, assistant professor at the University of Twente, and member of the ethical committee of the Faculty of Engineering Technology. With a background in cognitive science, Jelle brings a unique perspective to the field of industrial design. We'll also be getting to know Jelle on a personal level. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back and join us as we dive into the fascinating world of Yelle and his work in design and technology. Welcome everyone. Today we're here with Yelle van Dijk and this is the third episode of the Design Lab Brew. Um, yeah, maybe I can start introducing myself. My name is Chiara. I am one of the dream teamers here at Design Lab and I work for uh, the Design Lab Brew team. I'm a student in Atlas and I'm currently working on my thesis, which is on renewable energy, kind of. <laughs> and today with me is Jelle van Dijk. Maybe Jelle, you can introduce yourself quickly to all the listeners that do not know you yet. Yeah, sure. So my name is Jelle van Dijk and I'm assistant professor in human-centered design here at the University of Twente. Uh, working uh, mostly teaching in industrial design engineering and also in interaction technology, creative technology. Yeah. And a transdisciplinary master insert. And of course in a transdisciplinary <laughs> master insert, <laughs> which you did, yes. and which was a lot of fun. And we're doing a new episode this year, yeah. Yeah, very exciting to have you here. And yeah, I know a little bit about you already, but it's nice to introduce you to everyone. So maybe we can talk a bit about your background. I know your background is in cognitive science and industrial design, but maybe we can start from the start. Yeah, sure. <clears throat> so um, I started, um, I did cognitive science in Nijmegen. And um, there I, my master thesis was on embodied cognition. And basically at some point much later, I took that to uh, Eindhoven, where there was a professor, Case Overbeke, who was working also on embodied theories, but specifically in the context of design of interactive products. And I thought that was really exciting. And I, I had been teaching for a while then in uh, engineering schools, but I really wanted to do a PhD uh, in the end. So I, uh, I talked with him whether he wanted to supervise me and he did. So then I started the project on how to apply these, all these embodied theories that I already knew about to the design of um, mixed physical digital systems. So we call it tangible and embodied interactions. So these are things that are interactive but not typically not a screen but more like smart products or things moving uh, augmented spaces uh, wearable things things augmenting your body and so on so how to make sense of those kind new kinds of interactions using embodied theories yeah and since you're mentioning it uh, can you tell us a bit more about embodiment and embodied theory for yeah. everyone who's not familiar with it yeah, sure. So, so the, way I, the way I got into it, because there's many different ways to talk about embodiment, but the way I got into it was 
with the realization that many of the things that we used to think were thought processes in the brain. So all kinds of things about memory, planning, motor control, perception. Um, the traditional psychology thought that, that this was something internal. Your brain is doing that. And then in the end, when your brain's got figured out what's going on in the world, uh, it plans an action and then you start to do it, right? So all the major, the important psychological stuff is happening inside and then it's applied outside into the world as an action. And these embodied cognition theorists, they, they figured out that actually a lot of the ways we've solved problems in practice are by just starting to interact with the world. So we, we, we use our body and the way our body um, quite naturally interacts with the world in, in terms of habits and routines and skills that we have. Um, and then the world has a lot of structure too that, it, that helps us uh, do the right thing without having to think too much about it. And um, so if you know that, and so if you know that many of the things that we used to call cognition or thinking or sense-making are actually not happening only inside your mind, inside your brain, but also in your body and in the outside world itself, in the, in the, in the coupling, as we say, between yourself and the world, then you can also start to design for it. Then you can start to think, okay, so what kind of products or systems would really help that, that aspect of how we deal with things? Yeah, so is that how you transition from cognitive science to industrial design? Can you tell us a bit about that transition and how it was for you and the reason why? Yeah, exactly. There's, there's a number of reasons. Um, one of them was that I found out that the, the problems that cognitive science was investigating in the lab, like let's say, I, so I did uh, fMRI experiments, for example, for a while. And we were studying how people perceive objects. So we would give a person uh, a line drawing of a cow and then you would see something happening in the brain. And, and for sure, the brain is then telling you something about how you perceive line drawings while lying in an fMRI scanner without moving your body. <laughs> Being 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 taped to the to the wall, so to speak, because you're not allowed to move in an MRI scanner; otherwise, the data goes wrong. Yeah. So, so it's a, so. But but what does it say about real recognition of a real cow, like a farmer out in the field, in the mist, seeing in the in the distance a cow and and thinking that's not my cow? What's happening here or something? I don't know. I'm just making this up. I'm sure that, that what happens there in the field has nothing to do with what happens in that lab or almost lit, very little, right? The, what they call the ecological validity of these experiments is really low. So I thought I want to be investigating embodied cognition where it actually happens in the actual interaction between real people, real things. And so I thought I need to be in design world because that's that's where if you if you change the design and you see that people start to behave differently or respond differently, that's the real thing, the real deal, right? You get the whole in context, like you design something for a healthcare worker in 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 their daily work in the hospital, and you change the machine, and suddenly things go wrong. That's the embodied cognition right there, right where the action is. Now, the drawback, of course, is that you have very little control over your experimental conditions, right? There is, there's basically no possibility to do a real experiment there with 
having everything controlled and only varying one variable. So, so there's always a drawback. Uh, there's a trade-off, right? And I think it's very good that, that, that the fundamental scientists do, do these experiments in the, in the lab and they get really very little detailed answers to very specific detailed specialist questions. But I think as a complement, it's very good that design researchers sort of research embodied cognition in, in the actual natural real world. They get the whole picture but a very vague one or blurry one, <laughs> so to speak. And then in the end, as, a, as science, as the ac academic world needs to combine that in some way to, to get to the ultimate answer. Yeah, uh, I'm just curious, how does then, ex how do experiments differ in design versus what you said, more traditional science setting? And how is your experience around that? Yeah, so, so that's something that of a whole learning trajectory for myself as well. When I, I was trained uh, as a classical scientist, in, so there's a, there's a world out there, it's, uh, it's probably physical and only physical. Uh, somehow in that world there is biology emerging, somewhere in that biology there is uh, human beings emerging, somewhere in those beings are brains. And somehow these brains produce thoughts, ideas, feelings. And that's out there. It's, it's the physical reality and we need to study it objectively with the right apparatus and so on. I think design research is, is very much unlike that, at least the way I do it now. It's much more subjective, but as I would say, not in the wrong way, subjective. It's, it starts from the lived experience of people. So your first starting point is not, oh, this objective world outside of you, but you start, maybe as a designer, you start all the way inside yourself saying, okay, how am I experiencing this design process that I'm in? Uh, what do I think is the next best step to make to create something? And if I reflect on that, what does that tell me? What, what can I learn from reflecting on my own experience, from reflecting on my actions? from reflecting on the, all the discussions that I have with all the different people that each have their own individual experience of things. Yeah. Which is also something that we do in the Master Intro, <clears throat> right? Which is really about, there's maybe not one ultimate answer to the problem. It's more a matter of bringing all these different frames and perspectives together and seeking some kind of compromise or deliberately seeking a clash. And, and maybe from that, a breakthrough new insight comes. Yeah, in a way you could say it's not sci it's definitely not science in the traditional sense. It's much more, let's say, it's, it's more a matter of... Often my research is about reframing the original understanding. So instead of... So if you have a problem, instead of finding the answer to the problem, the end result for much of my research is, oh, we really didn't understand the problem. Or maybe the problem was another problem, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. We should, we should reframe, we should understand we should revisit the, the way we were looking at the problem in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. And that's not having a proof of an answer of something. It's more like, oh, there's just a whole world of where we can go to look for answers that we did, weren't looking yeah, because yeah, yeah. we didn't see the problem in that. And that's what design research can bring, I think. So maybe I'm paraphrasing wrong, but it seems to me that what you're hinting at is that perhaps maybe design is not the way to get to the truth, but it's the way how we can find out what questions are worth asking, also for scientists, right? So definitely. in that sense, they might be even complementary. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And, and well, there's, there's more to say about it, but I think this is essentially right, uh, what you're saying. 
and um, and it also it flips it also flips the the order of things a bit, which I like because sometimes scientists and also philosophers might think that they first need to figure things out and then they can give it to the designers to build applications yeah right but in the way we that you just um formulated it uh sometimes it's with, with the designers where it starts right they make a fundamental reframing or reconceptualization of what it is that we're actually investigating here and that will then help scientists generate more interesting hypothesis, for example, not just generate a hypothesis that you can study, but really discipline yourself in asking the questions that are relevant, that are needed, questions that we need to answer instead of questions that my fMRI scanner just happens to be able to answer, you know? Yeah. So that, that, that's, and, and for the philosophers, the same. They sometimes, philosophers think, I like philosophy a lot, and uh, I like a lot of philosophers, but some of my best friends are. Um, but <laughs> um, but um, sometimes they think they, they need to first figure out the ethics and so on and then hand it down to the designers. But there's, there's backtalk possible here. And sometimes even that's the, that's the mainstream that first should happen. Yeah. And, and maybe it's almost, uh, or it could be an iterative process as well, a circular exactly. process of going back and forth, because I think design kind of mediates, in a sense, science and society, right? There's, it's, there's very little science that gets to society without the mediation of design. So that's also, design helps gather the input of society to rephrase, maybe. Well, except, well, when you call it an iterative process, or when you even give the option of making science an iterative process in this way, uh, you think like a designer. This is, this is, <laughs> this is design thinking, right? So this, this is exactly right. Yeah, and since we're talking about design, and you're a designer as well, I would say, would you call yourself a designer? That's interesting, yeah. I mean, we're, we're maybe about to talk uh, later also on the design anthropology. I once did a summer school in, in design anthropology. And there, there were a bunch of designers and a bunch of anthropologists. But I was, of course, I was neither. I came from cognitive science and I was doing a PhD in industrial design, but I, I, I'm not trained as an industrial designer. So in terms of skills, I'm not a designer. Uh, but I've been walking around in the design community for a while. <laughs> Maybe that's the best I can do. But while I was there with the anthropologists, I was constantly the designer. So I was being so, oh, you designers and so. But when I was in, in, in Eindhoven visiting the, the actual designers as a cognitive scientist coming from the outside, they called me, uh, I don't know what they called me, cognitive scientist maybe, <laughs> but I was certainly not a designer. <laughs> so yeah, it depends on the context, I guess. Yeah, but I, I think it's cool. And maybe you fit well within the design lab because you're a design lab researcher and you fit well within this. A lot of researchers here are so multifaceted in what they do. So they might be experts in one thing, but also in another thing and another thing. And it gets hard to define yourself. But of course, there's no need to define yourself. Sometimes you can have a broad background and many interests. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and in that sense, I, I really like the design field also because there is more space. Maybe it will change. I mean, historically, what you see is that all sciences, all, all new, well, maybe not science, all new disciplines that emerge 
they start very open and interdisciplinary and, and being open to multiple methods, multiple ways of uh, approaching things, uh, a lot of diverse influences from other sciences because they don't have their own body of knowledge yet. And I like that space. So I, I always like to be in that kind of space. Cognitive science used to be that. It used to be a combination of computer science, psychology, linguistics, um, philosophy, um, uh, physical, uh, you know, biology, and so on. And it still officially is, but it, it starts to merge into one new kind of standard body of knowledge, and then it becomes normative. Like, this is how, how you do cognitive science. I like to be in a space where there's no rules yet for what is right or wrong, and it's more open-ended exploration. And right now, design research is that. And then you don't have to be one thing. Uh, you can, you can, uh, it's about meeting people with, who all can do different things and then bringing that together. And that's the fun part of it. Um, I don't know how it will evolve. Maybe what you always see is this kind of sort of uh, normativity creeping in over the long run, right? People starting to make boundaries like this is design research and what you're doing is not appropriate or not fitting or it doesn't belong to this category or it's something else. This seems to be a kind of uh, human tendency, which I don't like, but it that this happens. Yeah, know. it kind of develops almost as a human being. So it's yeah. so many things at the stars and then it kind of forms into its own person yeah, and it loses a, nice a bit metaphor. of that creativity and freedom that you have when you're a child. Yeah, yeah well, that's the other thing, right? I, 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 I think we should always try to find the child in ourselves again. And maybe in disciplines <laughs> as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. And talking about cognitive science and industrial design, I already kind of see a link, but that's because I know you already with the projects you have been working on. In particular, I know about Design Your Life, and it's a really cool project. I saw it also at Dutch Design Week with one of your PhD students. And yeah, I just wanted to ask you a bit more about it. Can you present it quickly? And then we can discuss it and you can tell me a bit more what pushed you in that direction and this and that. Yeah, great. So this is, this actually has a relation with uh, normativity. Um, I found out over the years that I dislike strong normativity. <laughs> and um, I, I got in touch at some point with uh, autistic people. And, and some of them are, were quite, quite uh, activist in saying, um, we're not the problem. <laughs> uh, it's the interaction between ourselves as autistic our artistic experience, our artistic way of being, and the rest of the world, which is very, very um, oriented towards the dominant uh, larger group, which is not autistic. And it's the interaction between those two, the expectations, the mismatch, that is the problem. And um, I started to become interested in this whole idea of assistive technologies for people with autism, or autistic people, if you want to call it. Um, and a lot of these technologies are very normative as well. So for example, you have social robots that train autistic children to, uh, tr to train them to look the speech partner, uh, the conversation partner in the eye. Uh, now that's even a very Western normative thing, right? There's a yeah. lot of cultures in the East where looking each other in the eye is really not uh, uncomfortable, not yeah. uncomfortable uh, especially if it's a teacher or a parent or 
So, so it's even very Western, but uh, uh, autistic people can be very scared by looking each other in the eye. And um, one of the uh, psychologist researchers that I, I really like uh, a lot and I've worked uh, with uh, Sue Fletcher Watson from Edinburgh. Um, she gave a talk where she really at some said to all these therapists in the room, like, why do we demand children to look uh, to look us in the eye if, if that's uncomfortable for them? Why can we not invent new ways of communicating for which that is not necessary? It, it doesn't, you don't need to look each other in the eye necessarily, right? Maybe it helps for if you're not autistic. Well, and so on. Uh, to make a long story short, we started a whole project on um, starting from the autistic experience itself and, and not taking that as a problematic, but just taking that as a given and saying, how can we design assistive technologies that really help autistic people both be themselves and interface with the world which is expecting other things of them. And for that, we thought we need to involve autistic people in the design of their own technologies instead. And, and then the, the end point of it, and that's the project we're doing now is, we're just gonna let them design their own technologies. We're gonna design, let them design their own products, things, life hacks, whatever uh, they think works, whatever they uh, discover that, that helps them uh, manage their own lives, get a grip on their own uh, everyday life, instead of somebody else designing something for them based on some kind of scientific model of autism or whatever. So, th so that's the project we're doing and we're designing a toolkit with which uh, uh, autistic young adults can design their own uh, self-help technologies for everyday life situations like planning, emotion management, uh, whatever it, I mean, even the topic is defined by people themselves, right? The first part of the toolkit is about what do you want to focus on, right? Yeah, and actually this is super interesting because I feel like that's maybe the prerogative of design that it really allows for this co-creation and involvement of the person you're designing for, right? Which I think normal science uh, or traditional science doesn't allow as much. I know that there's a lot of more uh, upcoming citizen science exactly. and the idea of involving citizens and the object of research to be participate and shape the research itself. But I feel like design is really the discipline that brought this forward. But uh, again, I'm not an historian, but that's so that's my perception. But I, I feel like it, maybe it didn't bring it forward, but it really allows for it in a in way that I can see in your research, for example. Yeah, it's in any case a field where it's happening right now. I mean, I think in, in, in social sciences, um, you have action research, uh, community work research. Um, that that like in the 1960s, 70s, you had lots of scientists who were uh, sort of just working with communities, trying to make the world better, and then also doing research on about that. And that is very similar yeah. to this kind of work. Uh, also, it, it was very much then also about empowerment and emancipation of certain mm -hmm. minority groups and so on. So that's not really new, but at least right now it's happening in, in, in design because there's also other kinds of design in which there is no attention for human beings or they're having a say in it at all. I mean, it's a human centered design is a certain particular direction, of course, but um, yeah, I like it very much. And, and I like that, especially, I, I think that, and, and that's the link to the cognitive science part. If things in your local environment 
are effectively going to be part of you in the sense of being incorporated into your embodied practices. If, if the things that you use on a daily basis are in a way extensions of your body, right? So like a, the hammer in the hands of the carpenter is the extension of the body and, and they feel so comfortable with it. And so without that hammer, they would no longer be the carpenter that they are. If you acknowledge that, then the carpenter should have a say in what this hammer is like, right? And, and, and the shape and the fit of that hammer. Um, at least that would be, be my ethical perspective, because if your, your everyday world is part of you, then you have, you have to have a say in it, in yeah. designing it. And I'm also curious about this. So uh, you've worked with a lot of neurodiverse people in shaping this project. And how has that changed your perspective? on how to design, if, if, if in any way? Um, ah, that's an interesting one. One big thing is that before I started this project, I still, was, I still had this idea of there are groups. <laughs> groups of people that are sort of the same. We need to design something for a bus drivers. So let's make a, let's make a profile like a persona of bus drivers. And maybe there's three kinds of bus drivers, but they all have this thing in common, which is like the bus driver way of being. I basically don't believe in that anymore. I became more even more radical. So I don't even believe in oh, there's uh, autistic people, and this this is how they are. <laughs> There are so many different kinds of autistic people that the word, the, the word and the, the category, it's, it's uh, to a large extent also, it's a social construct, not, not to deny autism as such, but where the boundaries are, you know, when, when you're going to say, oh, I'm autistic, I'm no longer autistic, or just today we had a, uh, a talk about, uh, about this topic and uh, somebody from the audience who was autistic said, yeah, I... I think autism uh, is autism in the way it's usually used is for me is a disorder because it uh, you have it when you have lots of problems in daily life when you when when you have so many problems that you have to go see a psychologist or a therapist. So it is a disorder because I said autism is not maybe not a disorder. But then she said, but now I had the, the therapy and, the, and, and so on and the coaching and I no longer have a lot of problems. So now for me, it became more like a profile. And I, I liked that uh, distinction, but it, but it also shows how difficult it is to, to put people in, uh, in Can I tell you one um, an, uh, nice anecdote? I recently read a book. I, I don't remember the name, but maybe we can put it in the show notes or whatever. It's, uh, it's on, on um, normality, the history of normality. Actually, there was this one uh, person, I don't remember him either, but they, um, he was a researcher and he uh, had the assignment to measure up all soldiers in England, I think. And, and, and then from that, he calculated the mean. So suddenly he had a mean height. But then, before you know it, uh, when you did not, when you had a length that was very far away from that mean, you suddenly became um, uh, disordered or, uh, you know, not normal. 
<laughs> because there was now an, a norm defined, but the norm was just the mean, you know, the, the mean of all people's heights was now going to be, it was no longer just a descriptive of the group, it, it became an objective. You should be this height, otherwise we're in trouble. For example, making clothes, making guns, making uh, shelters for soldiers. Uh, you need the mean height and then everybody who's outside of the mean suddenly is a problem for the uh, for the world. Yeah. Um, uh, Maybe they felt lucky then to be very tall or very short. Yeah, <laughs> so they didn't have to go to war. Yes. Exactly. Well, it's exactly like that. But uh, that suddenly, by, because of this, this, this trick of measuring a group and then calculating the average, that suddenly became uh, not just a, an objective descriptive, but it became a subjective um, a norm. Like this is what we should aspire to, right? Um, so when getting back to your question, I think there is a fundamental problem in design that I've not been able to solve, that it is in the end always normative and, and you always make categories and groups and you cannot really design for one. So I, I did this trick of saying, oh, let people design their own products, but it's a trick, right? Because what else can we do? Is that the only thing that we can do? Can we only ask people to, to design for the for individual selves? I don't think, yeah, it's not really practical. So I don't have an, so it's more like I, I, I didn't lear, learn how to design, but more what big problem it actually is. Yeah, that, that's very interesting. This is something I sometimes think about is if grouping people are creating this, maybe not, I wouldn't say stereotype, but yeah, personas is really a bad thing or a good thing, right? Because I imagine you have a background as a cognitive scientist, so you can tell me more about this. But I imagine that it does, in some sense, make our life easier to be able to categorize things sure. in a certain way. And sure. it would be, as you said, very hard to design if we didn't have that. So is categorizing bad or is it good? What is your take on that? Yeah, so, so this is more of a... I don't think good or bad is the is, is is that's it's not possible to answer it in that way, but it's an it's a very interesting topic in any case. I mean, what what a lot of autistic people themselves experience is that they focus very much on details, whereas what the world asks of that them in if you want to respond very quickly to complex situations, is to filter out all detail and just go with the broad. Uh, like the mainstream um, uh, habitual response of, oh, this is how you, so you enter a birthday party and there's all people sitting there and you, and so, and there's lots of things happening, but you can ignore almost all of it and you can just go with the flow doing the thing of going to the person that has the hat on, it's them, their birthday, uh, congratulating them, giving the present, sitting down, eating the cake, uh, chatting a bit with the person on the left, on the right. Really don't listen to what they're actually saying. <laughs> Just do small talk. Well, if, if there's something that autistic people find very difficult, it's small talk. Why? Because they're probably actually listening to what people are saying. And then suddenly you get a lot of information, right? And what if you hear all the people's conversations in that room? And what if you think, Oh, should I first give the present or first get the cake or first, if you have to think about everything, you, you go crazy very quickly, right? And this is exactly what happens. So yeah, there are situations when you really want to attend to detail. There's also situations where you want to sort of go 
go broad, go filter with broad strokes, sketch out the things and just go with some kind of intuitive improvisational flow. But what if you don't have that? Yeah. Um, but I think categorization is part of that letter. So the, the, the ability to very quickly, another example, you throw uh, by accident all your paper notes, and we're now at Sinta class, right? You throw your paper notes, and yesterday I threw them on the floor, like the whole kitchen floor of paper notes. If you really start to think about how to clean them up, it will take a long time. So what you do is you take a brush and you get most of them <laughs> first, the ones that are lying in sort of a heap in the middle, and then you do the rest. So you solve the problem by very quick categorizations. You're able to see the center part as a heap that yeah. you can just, you know, if you're not able to see that, then you, that's very problematic. But, but that's also how science works. So we, we categorize the world and we say, oh, this is the heap, this is the norm, this is the center part, this is the, the middle of the bell curve. But then the outliers, in, if you talk about people, they're not paper noted, they're real human beings, you know, that you're just leaving there, lying yeah. on the floor, unattended, maybe even just forgetting about them because they are partly under the kitchen sink or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hiding mean, it under yeah, the fridge yeah, so you don't see it anymore. Them away, yeah. <laughs> ignoring them. Um, yeah, that's what, that's what happens with when science uses that kind of method to talk about real human beings. And that's a problem. I don't have a solution for it yet. Maybe in your future research and <laughs> yeah, talking about future, what do you think briefly is the future of these research design your life that you've been working on? Yeah, so um, um, one thing I would like to put in the toolkit more, and if there is a student want to work with me on that, I'm uh, let let them uh, contact me. Is the the toolkit is now still um, a bit verbal? Yeah. It's pictures, cards, uh, a kind of a game board. And that's nice and it, and it works. And a lot of people in healthcare practices are also used to that kind of stuff, but it's not really very provocative or radical. Whereas if you see what we do here in Design Lab, sometimes we do these workshops and we also did it in the master insert with all kinds of scrap material and tape and glue guns and really making things. And I think making stuff with your hands and forming and creating form and giving form to things and then talking about it has its own specific value for cognition, for sense making. So if I can make the toolkit more, uh, even more tangible and less about talking and more about doing and creating together mm -hmm. and, and crafting and shaping, uh, I would like to put that, uh, put, put that more uh, into the toolkit. Um, and another thing that, but this has, doesn't have to do a lot with the toolkit itself, is um, about um, creating tools uh, that, that mediate between, uh, in this case, autistic and non-autistic people. So, so spaces where people can meet that are very diverse and that can interact with each other. And of course, I take this from an embodied perspective. So moving together, dancing, making music together, it's also very, uh, it's, it's a thing that I'm now thinking about a lot and, uh, and working on. Yeah, actually, it is interesting because I think I've heard it from you or from someone else, probably from both sides, that you were working on some sort of community for non 
neurodiverse people in the university. Is this what you're referring to? Can you tell me a bit more about it? If, oh if yeah, no, that's, that's connected to the Design Your Life project and that's an online space uh, where, um, uh, let's say, autistic people or people with ADHD, any kind of neurodiversity, you can define yourself if you belong to the group or not. Uh, we're not asking for diagnoses. Um, where uh, people can meet and exchange uh, ideas, knowledge. So maybe you're, you have a problem, you have an issue, you want to work on it, you want to follow the design your life cycle or not, but we provide it and we provide the tools. Uh, then you can maybe find a sparing partner, a conversation partner, or you can ask the whole group like, oh, I've got, I've got three ideas to solve this. Which one is the best, do you think? Or I want to make something. How do I make this? And somebody in the group might say, oh, yeah, you can do it. You can 3D print it. I can help you. Or So just a space where people can help themselves. So you maybe don't even need any kind of coach or therapist for this particular problem because you just, you're helping each other. Yeah. And, uh, and that's... We're now setting that up, so um, I've got somebody now, uh, um, uh, Jasper, who also is from Designers, um, who is uh, setting that up and uh, organizing a number of workshops, again co-design workshops, nice. to design the online space and uh, and make it make make it run. Well, best of luck. Sounds like a nice addition to your project and yeah. just to the university, I think. Um, maybe. Since we've discussed a bit about designing your life, we can move on to uh, other things that are coming up. I know you're involved with the design anthropology workshop that's coming up and talk. Maybe yep. you can tell me a bit more about that and what your involvement with it. Yeah, this is by uh, Jacob Boer, who is a professor in um, uh, Kolding in Denmark. And I've done a postdoc there and also this uh, summer workshop that I talked about earlier. Um, I um, uh, so this, I, he, he does design anthropology and also sometimes he talks about participatory innovation. So this is the, the basic setting is always a multi-stakeholder workshop, which is very much like the kinds of stuff that we deal with in the master insert on, on transdisciplinary working. He's been working on that for years and years. How do you bring all different kinds of perspectives and stakeholders together? In, in creative workshops and let them uh, solve the problem uh, together, complex mm -hmm. problems that, that don't have a single simple answer. And then he designs tangible tools. So that's the embodied part again, because he has the same idea as I have that if you make things tangible and physical and you put that in between people, they have a kind of reference point or an anchor to center the conversation around. So people can point to it and say, oh, this is what I mean. And somebody else can say, oh, you mean like this? And then turn the thing around and then yeah. say, no, no, not like that. Or add something here or have, uh, change the thing right there and then together. Uh, and then you have the shared understanding almost physically embodied in, in, uh, in what you do with the, the objects in the middle. So he has all kinds of sets of toolkits that he tried out and, and he had students build different kinds of collaborative conversation toolkits for stakeholder sessions. So he's probably going to speak about that. Um, and I think one of his interests right now, which is also interesting uh, for the, some of the discussions that we had, is if you have, in a project, you have specific theory. So, so we're doing the autism project. There's, of course, official science about autism. How do you integrate that into the design project? Where does it come in, right? Traditionally, the autism knowledge was the, was the, the ultimate 
reference point, right? It should be the scientific knowledge was, of course, central and should be uh, integrated in whatever you design because yeah. that was the official science, right? But now in this multi-stakeholder ses session, um, yeah, I sometimes call it theory becomes actually one stakeholder. Or, or there's different kinds of theories that are different stakeholders, but there's also the experiential knowledge of people themselves, um, uh, other kinds of stakes and, and uh, other kinds of perspectives that are also relevant for the problem at hand. So how do you bring in the theory? And he's now designing tangible toolkits to bring in theory into uh, the conversation. Yeah, and how did you bring in your, the theory in your Design Your Life project? Yeah, that's interesting. <clears throat> well, mainly we, um, um, we work together with people who have the knowledge and then we just bring them in in multi-stakeholder ses sessions in a, in a traditional sense. Um, and um, the PhD st uh, students who are working on it, of course, they read a lot. And we do have very um, in-depth discussions. I'm not sure whether we really have a very strong method yet, but we don't just do things. So we, we talk about, okay, so there's, this is all kinds of theoretical knowledge. This is what we got out of all these context mapping and co-design sessions that we had with clients. This is the knowledge that came out of designing and prototyping and reflecting on the ideas that we had, which is its own kind of knowledge, the designerly knowledge, so to speak. And these are three different streams and we iteratively try to weave them Mm -hmm. into one uh, string of uh, the ultimate insight, so to speak. Um, so, so we do try to do it deliberately, not, not just theory just doesn't come in just from the side as usual, business as usual. We really say, okay, this is one stream of information coming into the project. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, thank you, Jelle, for all your answers so far. Uh, here at Design Lab Brew, we have this special section that's called Hot Brew, where Ooh. we ask you spicy question, not very spicy, but fast, fast question. Uh, and you respond as quickly as you can. Uh, no pressure. <laughs> um, yeah, I think my first question was, what is the inspiration behind your research direction? Um, I would say the... the the aversion I have against normativity in the end, but it took me a long while to find out. It was only way after I was working on it that I found out that that actually went all the way back to my early childhood years in school, where I was always irritated by the fact that people say, oh, this is how you should do it, because this is how we do it. Or <laughs> I think that, that is in the end my, the inspiration with, between, uh, behind my research. That's nice. Yeah, I really like the answer. I feel like I'm the same contrary answer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I think my question uh, goes more back to what you said before about uh, designers. Um, what you were describing sounded like uh, user-centered research. And um, I, you also mentioned that you want to involve the users in their own products and their life hacks. So you're removing the designer from it just being internal and trying to place that role within the stakeholder as well. Yeah. Um, how can you, I assume that that changes a lot from person to person and who gets involved, but how do you deal with that flow or that customization in the sense of 
whether everybody is capable of doing design of their own? Right. For example, if maybe the uh, stakeholders are not, or the users are not very, they're not grasping the design aspect. Yeah. And they're not trained in it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I do think that design is a profession and it takes a lot of, it's a skill and any skill takes all so many hours of training. And so you cannot just copy that. Say, here's the, here's the toolkit. <laughs> now you can design yourself. So the only thing that you can do is relate to what people can already, what, what skills do they have? But you can, for example, ask them, what, do you sometimes make things? What kind of things do you make? And then, then you find out that people do in their everyday lives create, they are creative, they find solutions, they make things, but they just don't take it seriously. You say, oh no, that's just what I do in, uh, yeah, I'm just, I'm gardening. That's just gardening. Oh, is that oh, is that also the, does that count? <laughs> can, you know, well, of course, it, these are skills that you can build on then. Or oh, I make clothing uh, for my for for myself or for my kids. Well, you're you're a designer then, right? I mean, so in that sense, I mean, you're not an industrial designer working in industry. So so you can can try to uncover what people uh, can already do and then just go from there. Maybe it's very small steps. I mean, everybody who started to study design here was not a designer before they came in and they had to start somewhere. So you just start at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Well, so uh, good advice, start at the beginning. <laughs> start at the beginning. <laughs> and that was uh, my main question. Uh, I think we discussed this before we started this interview, but uh, we discussed knowledge for knowledge's sake and whether research should have a more applicable scope to itself. And what I was curious about is from the research you've done, so not just design your life, but all your training and all your working in academia, uh, how, what do you think it has added to your life more practically and kind of what are your takeaways from your research? Oh, wow. Um, that's a, that, a rapid answer. That's <laughs> <laughs> just a normal sized answer. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Oh, hmm. I can't really, I don't see it really as that I found all kinds of answers that I'm now applying in my life, right? Um, for me, it's not like that. It's more that I started to. Uh, continuously redefine what I'm actually researching and what I'm actually going for. And I did learn things from that, right? So I remember at some point, there's a human-centered design researcher who uh, recently wrote a book on ethics and, uh, and technology, Mark Stein, a very nice guy. And I was with him in a reading group all the way in the beginning of my PhD. And I tried to constantly prove theoretically that we would need to do something with embodied embodied cognition and embodied phenomenology and these theories in the design of interactive systems and that there was i was suggesting that a lot of the technologies in today's world don't acknowledge that they are not uh, they are speaking to our, our our minds to our brains to our to language to cognition uh, traditional cognition cognition and they are no longer really speaking to our bodies, our crafts, our skills, our uh, creative improvisation and so on. And I was trying to make this point and I couldn't really prove it. Or And, and at some point Mark said, 
you just have a mission. You, you have a vision, you have an idea about what is right. Why do you try to prove it scientifically? Why don't you just say, this is my, val this is my ethics, these are my values. I think we should make technology more like this. We, I think we should go more into that direction. It's just design vision. So this was maybe also the transition for me to go from traditional scientist to designer slash researcher in which you can just say, this is my vision. I, I have an idea on what is right and it's a normative, it's, that's a normative idea in and of itself. So I'm anti-normative, <laughs> of course, in the sense that I want to be open to all kinds of different diversity of norms, but it doesn't mean that I don't have any values or ideas of my, my own. But I used to think that that wasn't allowed. And I, th I also see that a lot of, to say a little bit more about this, I, I see a lot of students, especially in industrial design, for example, who are very afraid to just state what they feel is right. Uh, because they think, oh, I don't have a source for this, or I cannot account for it's not proven, or there's no evidence for this. It doesn't matter. You shouldn't claim that it's that is um, reality. <laughs> you can say, I think this is right. Doesn't mean to say it's it's true, like true of the world, like it's a fact. Because it's not a fact that you're stating. You're stating your vision, your your own values. You know and. Um, I like it in design research that you are allowed to do that because I think that brings it much brings your research much closer to uh, being about what it means to be human. Uh, how do we want to organize this planet? <laughs> well, uh, what do we want to do, right? Which is in the end the interesting questions, not just what is the case or what is proven as a fact. Yeah, I think that's super interesting because that's one of my pet peeves with research in general. So I, I understand that in non-design research, it's less allowed, but I feel like a lot of times when you look at and read academic research, it has the stone of uh, detachment and exactly. superior objectivity, which is exactly. uh, of course not even reachable in reality, right? So by trying as hard as possible to sound complicated and detached, I feel like you really lose the idea that science at the end of the day science and design, but also science, right, is, is made by human beings and it's exactly. not perfect, right? And it cannot be objective because there's, it's observed through human experience, yeah. right? And, yeah, and, and, and not everybody agrees with this, but I truly think that science is a tool. It's a tool for humans to understand the world. It's not used by um, parrots, it's not used by cows, it's a human tool. And uh, the moment that, that you start to think that science is, is existing outside of humans, right? And then people say, no, no, yeah, well, people, it's the humans that execute the science, but there is the science, which is the facts of the world and so on. And well, I'm not, I'm not gonna judge that. Uh, and I, I don't have the final opinion on that. But in all the situations that I encounter, I see real people, like you say, scientists being at work trying to figure out something and that's for me what science is it's a human activity it's a practice i feel like research is also a very creative process and then when i've done research myself it feels really rigid so i thought that was a really nice point um because i've also talked to yellow extensively about like research and if i were to do a phd 
why is it so hard to focus on one thing? Because I don't know if I have ADHD either, but it's really hard for me to stay in line <laughs> with one thing because I love the dynamicism and things going on all the time. Um, so sometimes you need to put something down and then the ideas come and then you have to do something else and let those ideas come to you. Yeah, At least exactly. that's how my brain works. I mean, um, when you walk into a lab, um, and you s then then there's a whole lot of creativity. In scientists are very creative, mm -hmm. and and they discuss and they brainstorm and they have lots of fun as well and and so on. And you see nothing of that in the paper, mm -hmm. right? In the paper, it's always like, oh, we had this hypothesis. Where did that come from? Where did the hypothesis come from? Mm -hmm. Nobody writes about that. Nobody talks about this whole process of getting to a hypothesis, whereas my, my papers, my research is mainly only about that. I, I often end, well, not literally, but if you would read what I write, the, the kind of stuff that I put in the conclusion could be uh, a possible hypothesis. <laughs> and it's the, it's the outcome of the research, you know? But it's important because how, how we cannot, you, yeah, otherwise you can just, I can invent a thousand hypotheses, but which one is the right hypothesis? That's some that's research too, right? Yeah. yeah. As we said at the start, I think, you know, design maybe helps you better exactly. in deciding which questions are relevant and rephrasing and reframing your questions to really touch on the right point. The dialogue is, is good, right? So everybody their own strengths. Um, it's sometimes it's very good to find out if you build this bridge, will it collapse? And it's good to find that out before you actually build the thing. Yes. <laughs> Otherwise, many people die and it costs a lot of money. So then you can just do the hard science and it actually works. And there's many application areas where the hard science really works and you need to really figure out how exactly. But there are so many other things where we also apply this model of objectivity, but it only works to some extent. And there's always a lot of stuff still missing and then when, when scientists really take that, uh, um, be on that high horse, is that the expression? I always yes. learn English expressions from Gemma. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> and say, oh, we know everything. Then what you get is that whole groups in society will, will bail out. And it's not a matter, it doesn't help to explain even harder to them how the science was right. No, the planet is the sustainability. It's really you listen to me. The ecological crisis. Listen to me. They won't listen, not because you're not telling the truth, but because there is this whole uh, mismatch, where science is uh, sort of ignoring human experiences, values, yeah. human interests, uh, human being, basically. I agree. And overriding that with with data tables and facts and and and, and graphs and so on. Yeah, and and I think touching that point because I think that's something I'm very passionate about is that sometimes science <laughs> they, uh, places itself almost superior to human beings so you're like oh you need to listen to this because science says exactly. so right but what does it mean science said so someone researched that and found that out and I feel like that's also uh, back to the how research is written there is all this impersonal tone gives this impersonality to science that makes it less uh, believable for specific parts of the population whereas I feel like um, back in the good old days now but if yeah. you look at uh, I, I was reading a scientific paper from maybe the 1900s 
Uh, wow. Yes, and there it was completely different. It was more about me, 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 right? So it was about researchers like saying, "Oh, I said I found out this, and yeah. you are wrong because of this, this, this," right? Yeah. So very personal. Yeah. And, and I think that that was in a sense more accessible. I'm not more saying that was yeah more honest, right? And I'm not saying we should go back to that. There's of course some very big drawbacks from that, but perhaps it is possible to find maybe even with the help of design some ways to kind of bridge that gap between complete impersonality and maybe over personality you know over the top personality of some scientists definitely yeah definitely let's go for that so thank you so much for joining us for this episode maybe to close things off you can tell us a bit more what are the next three steps for you you know next three steps next three steps after this podcast well i mentioned already the uh, making the toolkit even more tangible and if somebody wants to do it uh, redesign the toolkit one one more time uh, reach let, out to yell let me know <laughs> Um, the other thing is that I'm working, uh, I briefly mentioned it on, on this system of uh, a, a more a movement system with wearables and stuff where um, uh, neurodiverse diets, so, so let's say an autistic child and a non-autistic uh, brother or sister can move together and then uh, find contact, but in a way that is not uh, determined by the norms of the neurotypical social norms, but also not purely the norms of the autistic, what the autistic uh, uh, person wants, but how they meet in the middle, how they find each other. Uh, I'm very interested and very excited about uh, pursuing that uh, project. And the third thing is I'm going to definitely continue practicing my salsa dancing skills because I really like doing that and I'm Oh. very much into that so spending a lot of time actually right now on uh, practicing the the moves that's um, really cool and then you find out that that things are often really a skill right it takes just a long time and long practice to to get the hang to tune yourself into the environment so to speak so i'm uh, that's what i'm practicing in dancing uh, but a little birdie told me that you're really good actually Oh no. <laughs> That's what the same with guitar playing, right? I can play a little bit of guitar and then you're at the campfire and then you think all oh, good of yourself and then somebody else comes, oh, can you lend me the guitar? And then, blah, 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 and then oh my God, they're so much better. So I always get that. Yeah. Smoke on the water and they start playing like Led Zeppelin. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Oh. Well, thank you so much. And if anyone from our audience wants to reach out to you, how should they go about it? I'll or learn more about your research. Send an email and... Uh, <laughs> I'll get back. And I'll get yes. Back. Yeah, and if you want to... I have a website, so you can uh, look at the website and uh, for information. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. I'll let you go because I know you're very busy. Yeah. And yeah, have a great afternoon. Yeah. Thank you too.